liquid staking hadn't really evolved um, across the existing solutions to move from a consumer-facing sort of crypto-native offering to one that could be offered to platforms and sort of meet them where they're at, which means providing great performance, security, and compliance in an all-in-one solution that is easy to integrate. And so that is really why we built Liquid Collective and why Alluvial has been supporting the development of the protocol. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that, like Dan and I, you believe the future of finance is on the blockchain. And we're excited that London is becoming a global hub for blockchain innovation and institutional adoption of digital assets. That's why we're pumped to host the 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. Later in this episode, we'll tell you how you can save 20% off on your ticket. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We've got an awesome interview lined up for you today with Mara Schmidt the co-founder and CEO of Alluvial, the software development company supporting the Liquid Collective protocol. Liquid Collective is a new liquid staking protocol on Ethereum, uh, and they're really focused on bringing and driving institutional adoption. We get into conversations around what Alluvial is doing to support Liquid Collective uh, and some of the ins and outs of Liquid Collective as a whole. Uh, but most importantly, we have a very exciting news announcement related to the introduction of SLAs for Liquid Collective node operators. This is a very needed piece of the puzzle for liquid staking in the industry as a whole. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the episode. Mara, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So... I guess if you could just walk us through your high-level overview of the liquid staking market on Ethereum today and Alluvial's role, that would be super helpful to paint that color for the listeners. For sure. Maybe we can start just by setting uh, the baseline a little bit. So uh, give you guys a little bit more context about Alluvial's role in supporting Liquid Collective and what Liquid Collective Protocol is. So Alluvial is the software development company behind the Liquid Collective Protocol. Liquid Collective has come together as a collection of industry leaders uh, focused on building enterprise-grade liquid staking standard in the market. So the reason that we started um, Alluvial and and looking at the liquid staking market from the perspective that that we did is we had a lot of uh, members from our team, including my co-founder Matt, who came over from Figment, myself coming over from Bison Trails and um, Coinbase, um, as well as others in our team who had spent a tremendous amount of time over the last couple of years building traditional staking products in the market to support businesses and platforms to provide great access uh, to staking um, and supporting the security on public blockchain networks. And one of the gaps that we noticed uh, in the market was that liquid staking had um, you know, garnered traction, I would say, over the last 24 months particularly. Today, liquid staking makes up almost you know, a majority of the staking market in totality. And those numbers have actually been growing on a relative basis uh, throughout that time period. So there's definitely resonance for liquid staking in the market um, as a product that offers distributed access across different operators, a receipt token or liquid staking token that provides users a proof of their stake tokens on chain. Uh, and an ability to use those state tokens for other purposes. And so that really reduces the opportunity cost um, of, of, of using staking and locking it in a traditional staking solution. And so one of the things that we've seen in that sort of market trend is that it seems like a lot of the early participants of the market, early adopters being crypto-native users, uh, folks that are you know both financially and technically literate and really understand how to use crypto, have really started migrating from traditional staking solutions uh, to liquid staking options in the market. Now, one of the things that we had seen in the, in, in the staking market as it has been evolving since, you know, I want to say 2019, 
is that a lot of platforms, businesses, um, such as custodians, exchanges, and others, were starting to look at staking at something that they could offer to their customers. But the liquid staking market hadn't really evolved to provide a solution that would actually work for those market segments, participants that I would consider entering the early majority of the market, if you want to think of it from an adoption perspective. So platforms that provide services to users um, that are starting to on-ramp into crypto. So participants that are providing custody support or exchange services to retail users, as well as fintechs that provide access to you know your average, average and everyday user. And so liquid staking hadn't really evolved um, across the existing solutions to move from a consumer-facing sort of crypto-native offering to one that could be offered to platforms and sort of meet them where they're at, which means providing great performance, security, and compliance in an all-in-one solution that is easy to integrate. And so that is really why we built Liquid Collective and why Alluvial has been supporting the development of the protocol. Awesome. I, I love the context there. And so if we zoom in a little more on to the, the players in the space and kind of the market structure, we've seen that Liquid Staking has been incredibly popular with about 80 or 80% uh, of staked ETH is as staked liquidly. Uh, and if you go deeper into that, then you see Lido's market dominance has grown to about 78% of liquid staked ETH and about 32% of total staked ETH. And this has been a bit of a point of contention across much of the ecosystem. You've seen some of the smaller players in the space come together and kind of self-limit themselves. Uh, and you've seen like just a, honestly, just a lot of the discourse revolving around this uh, as being a lot of push and pull between you know, they should be like more cognizant of the impact this has on the market versus, well, I think the other side of that is you just need better solutions in the market that users actually want to use. So how do you think about this this market dynamic with Lido's dominance in, in the, the early stages of this liquid staking market as a whole? Yeah, so it's a super interesting and also very timely conversation given all the discourse in the ecosystem around this. Um, I think circling back on sort of the comments I made earlier, um, I think liquid staking does fundamentally change the dynamics of the market in a meaningful way. There is um, really no reason to, you know, hold Ethereum if you have the option to hold staked Ethereum and earn rewards and contribute to security while doing so. And so the way that we think about this sort of zooming out and looking at the macro level is that liquid staking tokens um, sort of change the natural constraint that you would see on the targeted addressable market or the total amount of ETH that we would see staked in the network because the amount of ETH that would be staked in the network through traditional staking is really constrained by the fact that ETH is also a consumable asset, right? So used for gas payments, fee payments, and other things. And the opportunity cost of using ETH for other things, right? And you would think that other reward-generating activities such as using them in lending, um, or other, you know, participation opportunities could, you know, create an equilibrium in the market where we could see, you know, 35 to 40 percent sort of the, being the cap on the total e-state and traditional solutions. But liquid staking really changes that fundamental dynamic, right? Um, and sort of, you know, mitigating the the opportunity cost or the trade-off that you have to make when having the option to hold state ETH and also use it for other things. And so we, we do fundamentally believe that that just changes and expands significantly how much of Ethereum we, we're going to be seeing staked in the market. To your comments on, you know, how have we seen the market evolve? I've worked in the staking space for a couple of years now. <laughs> um, and proof of stake is still really early and it's also still a maturing market. And so when you look back 
about two years ago, the, trend, the main trend that we've seen is there were previously actually also providers that sort of hit that 32, 33% mark. Um, and those were mostly traditional staking as a service providers that were really successful at sort of capitalizing on the early market opportunity of providing staking services to businesses and platforms and other users. Um, and there was sort of the shift of a lot of that market share away from these centralized providers and towards distributed solutions, right? Like Lido protocols that provide liquid staking services. I think our general view of the market and just having seen that evolve is that sort of these early you know, means of centralization and concentration are somewhat of a sign of sort of a maturing market, a market that is still evolving, where you sort of see solutions transcend one another, sort of evolve into something that in the end becomes a more comprehensive, a more secure, a more diversified offering for users. From our point of view, I think we do want to see Ethereum as a, you know, an environment where users have many different options of how they want to stake their ETH whether it's doing it themselves or choosing a traditional staking provider or, you know, running DVT clusters across um, themselves and their friends or choosing to, you know, um, work with a liquid staking protocol that sort of meets the needs and requirements that they have. And from our perspective, building a really healthy competitive market with optionality for different user segments and solutions that are really catered to meeting the needs that those user segments have is the best way <laughs> to make sure that we end up with a much more diversified solution landscape. And I think, you know, having sort of seen this evolution over the last few years, my personal perspective is that we're really early still, you know, there's a lot of market participants that haven't entered and there's a lot of, you know, the early majority and late majority market that is looking to come on board, right? And that will require very different types of solutions, scope and expertise uh, to bring those types of customers on. That's super helpful context as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in terms of adoption, I mean, Liquid Collective launched in March and then made its code open source in July. And now it kind of has seen recently deposits really pick up and now it's up to around $75, $80 million of, of uh, collateral for its uh, LST. So how does the, the, the product offering, I guess, differ from other things on the market that, you know, would be enough of a force to bring users over to you guys as opposed to, you know, uh, people in the competition? For sure. So I would start probably by saying that we have a very differentiated approach to who we service in the market. As I mentioned previously, having come and helped build, you know, businesses like Bison Trails and Figment um, across people on our team, we really understand and know what it means to serve enterprises and platforms that are using products to service their users. And our protocol is actually B2B2C, or if you will, a protocol to platform to user type of distribution model where we actually build a protocol that can service businesses and platforms that can integrate our solution through a comprehensive suite of APIs and then actually service that capability to their user segments, right? Whether those are institutional customers or retail users. Um, and so we do have a quite distinct focus on servicing those users. We're not directly to consumer or directly to retail, which is what all liquid digging protocols in the market today are really targeting. Um, so that's probably the first thing. Um, today we have a multiple different integration venues, which means that you can go on Coinbase or you can go on Bitcoin Swiss or you can you know, connect your Fireblocks or Bitcoin wallets through Figment and you can actually um, access the protocol through those different venues in an experience that's natively embedded, something that you're used to um, and with all the benefits and perks of you know, selecting that platform of choice. 
what we had noticed, as I mentioned earlier, and sort of the part of our origin and why we started building this product was that when you service businesses and platforms, there's sort of an innate focus that you need to have on security, performance, compliance, um, and, and security, right? And so those are the things that we have doubled down on as we have thought about our positioning, the things that we prioritize and invest in. Um, and we can go into, you know, sort of the things that differentiate that feature set uh, in a little bit more detail. So I want to dive a little deeper on an exciting announcement that you guys have. Uh, Liquid Collective will become the first liquid staking protocol to introduce service level agreements for baseline validator performance. How does this really help to ensure that the Liquid Collective users are receiving superior staking performance? And can you just dive in a bit on the importance of this overall uh, service level agreements in this space? Yeah, we're really, really excited about this, actually. Um, we are really the first protocol to have an embedded SLA um, for users. And what the reason the, the reason why we did this is when you look at traditional SaaS products, right, SLAs are really standard. You have a set of you know provisions and guarantees that you extend to platforms or to the users that are using the product because those guarantees are really important to them. They want to know what they're getting. Um, and they want to know that the things that you're offering, right? And for us, you know, taking this approach of, um, you know, finding the middle ground between building a decentralized and distributed backend, but servicing different platforms that extend this to users, you know, building this type of performance SLA, this type of guarantee around relative performance was really important to us and sort of a Herculean effort <laughs> across a number of different partners, including uh, Rated and uh, the stake team, the folks over at Coinbase um, and uh, Figment. And so it was really exciting to get, you know, a task group together that really looked at this in detail to figure out the right approach, um, you know, what kind of methodologies and objectives we were looking at. And so what we ended up deciding on was really in an effort to build a market-wide sort of understanding uh, for how we can measure performance. Um, sort of requires, you know, using a methodology that is replicatable, it can be generalized, ideally it reduces randomness as much as possible as taking a more deterministic approach and it's accessible, right, to everyone else so that, you know, not just Liquid Collective, but other participants in the market can use it. And we recognize that need because when we asked our node operators how they were measuring performance so that we could, you know, aggregate that in some way that could be measured to our users, we found that everyone had a different way of measuring it. <laughs> and that obviously doesn't really work when you're trying to explain to customers, you know, what they're getting um, if, if they're using your product. And so we decided to sort of join forces with everyone on this. Um, and Rated has done really great work putting together what they call the Raver. So this is basically a measurement that looks at how validators are performing against the duties that they have, the consensus layer duties, so proposing and basically attesting, and how effective they are in doing these things over time. What it does look at is some of the elements that are more random, right? Like execution layer fees and other things that introduce randomness into this measure. So we wanted to look at something that is deterministic and that we can really use as a comparative metric. And so we went through a benchmarking process. We looked at how um, you know, different node operators that run more than 100 nodes, so professional operators that operate at scale, need to perform. And, and we set a benchmark at the 50th percentile um, of all ETH providers that run more than 100 nodes as the benchmark for the SLA uh, that we put in place. And so what we do is take a three-month trailing average, and then we update that every month to take a look at a snapshot of the overall network and how everyone is doing. And our benchmark is, you know, set on a relative basis across our node operators. 
Um, what's really great with this methodology is that you can build on it over time. So we're going to be looking at things like adding this blocks quotas, for example, and other things that are sort of meaningful um, and building out sort of the dashboard capabilities, API and monitoring that people can use for observability as well. And so our hope is that, you know, this is sort of a contribution um, to something that the industry can actually use more holistically um, and can be implemented in a way so everyone can really compare what they're looking at when we say, you know, how performant is a protocol or a solution and the operators within it. Now that's super, super exciting to hear. And also very, very awesome to hear that the folks over at Rated were involved as they've been doing such a great job kind of pushing forward the the data side uh, of the beacon chain. So really appreciate to hear that as well. And I find it really interesting that uh, all of the node operators that you were using today kind of had different metrics, but that makes sense. Uh, but I'm curious when you kind of approach them with this idea of using this unified metric, like what was their reaction? Were they almost like relieved or... Um, did they like help kind of guide and create this as well? They most definitely did. Um, I think everyone had a ton of feedback perspective. We spent a lot of time, you know, sort of across the task group, um, looking and considering different inputs that ended up, you know, tweaking the way that we thought about both the methodology, the benchmark and other things that, you know, sort of folded into that. I would say that for us, collaboration has sort of been an anchor point of the way that we've built the business. Um, and so we have been running this sort of um, task group format with industry experts and subject matter experts on a number of different things like the compliance standards that we put in place or the terms of service agreements that we published. We partnered with an industry leading cohort, including folks like Lido on a set of regulatory white papers. So we've generally taken the approach that taking a collaborative measure is the best way to build buy-in, is the best way to accomplish the establishment of, of some type of holistic or objective standard setting, whether it's in the performance category or in the security category and, and other areas, because we do think that it actually helps everyone in the industry sort of use a common language, right, around things that are important. Um, and we definitely want to, you know, contribute to that whole force and, and that foundation. And so I think the node operators were excited. <laughs> Um, to sort of dig into this. And again, we're um, providing a ton of perspective. And so it's been really helpful to sort of get those folks rallied around. And hopefully there's more participants and other node operators and the community at large that has feedback um, on the methodology and things that can be incorporated um, to continuously iterate on that. I'm curious, when you kind of conducted this, I, I suppose, a bit of a study, how much variance was there between like the the, the big boys and like, from like the most performant one, let's say absolutely perfect to like, let's say like towards the lower bracket, like, was it that big of a difference? Because in my head, I always kind of just assumed that everyone was more or less the same, <laughs> which is probably a bad assumption. But if you could shed some light on that, that'd be awesome. Totally. I mean, we did a really uh, widespread analysis on a number of different things. We looked at different operator categories, so validators that were running a different amount of validator counts looking for anything like at-home validators to professional operators that run more than 100 you know validators for their customers and so the way that we looked at this was you know what is the variance or what is the normalistic distribution um, of the operational performance and how many standard deviations if you look at the bell curve right you'll sort of have the median and you'll have sort of the distribution across standard deviations it's actually a pretty narrow range. So um, the deterministic performance is not extremely variable. But that's actually a really important measure because it tells you how effective validators are at doing their actual job. 
right? There's other components like execution layer rewards and fees that may feed into certain, certain randomness depending on the blocks that people are um, you know, proposing and, and sort of getting rewarded for. But for us, it was really important that we were able to take an objective measure and to also figure out what the density was across the function, right? How much was the distribution? How did that look? That makes a lot of sense, especially on the side of kind of like reducing that randomness, right? If you're pr proposing a block when it's in the peak of a uh, bear market, gas is at nine guay, it's going to have a lot different uh, of activity happening within that block than, you know, if you're literally the next block after the FT FTX collapse, right? So that makes a lot of sense to kind of take that angle. Uh, but the other thing I think about on the other side of that, I guess, is you know, MEV opting into MEV boost kind of does change uh, the how you allocate or how you accrue rewards. So how does that kind of factor in as well? It it absolutely does. Um, all of the node operators in Liquid Collective run MEV relays, um, and so it's it's definitely important from a performance distribution standpoint. One of the things that we're looking at is what is the um, relative performance delta between different relays, and what can we learn about the observability there. Um, in the market, we have taken the approach of letting node operators sort of make their own selection uh, based on the research and the intel um, that they've done internally and, and not to, you know, sort of, you know, provision or, or, or mandate that. The thing that is important to us and it's important to us across sort of all different vectors is just the distribution. So making sure that we have um, distribution variability and diversity across the different relays that are being used, but also the regions that uh, operators are um uh, deploying their nodes in, making sure that people have diversification across cloud providers or on-prem, making sure that you know we have resilient infrastructure that prevents correlated failures. This is somewhat tangential, but like, would you say that these service level agreements kind of open the door a bit more so for some more institutional capital to partake in uh, liquid staking? Because you'd think they'd want some kind of assurance, I suppose. So I don't know if that was an angle that went into, I guess, the rationale behind and motivation behind this. Absolutely. I mean, you need to know your customer segments. <laughs> and so from our perspective, um, there there are um, additive things that are, I think, important for us to introduce into the industry um, to ensure that we can actually bring institutional capital online, but also onboard a lot of the enterprises that provide access to just mainstream users um, to be able to partake in staking, Right. Um, and the things that these platforms look at is in some way, you know, a guarantee and an understanding in an easy to measure way, uh, what it means to have a performance solution um, or what it looks like to have, um, you know, compliance measures in place that are meaningful to them. So fr from our perspective, we've always taken the lens of what do our customers need and what can we build towards to give them the assurances and to build a holistic product offering that can meet them where they're at and where their needs are. Okay, that's super interesting. And, I, and I'm sure this metric will play a role in how you gauge whether a new node operator will be able to be onboarded in the future. But can you just walk us through what that process looks like? I know you have three today between Coinbase Cloud, Figma, and Staked, uh, but do you plan to kind of scale that up as TVL increases? Uh, absolutely. I think that's one of the sort of um, foundational elements of the way that we've been thinking about the way that we've sequenced things and where we've been spending our time. Part of the work that we announced with Rated um, is not just around the focus on performance, but also formulating um, an objective methodology for risk and security measures and standards. Um, we'll warn that soon. 
Um, but we've really wanted to build a foundation that could build for an objective framework um, that we could leverage to look at and evaluate and onboard new node operators to set some of these targets, to set some of these threshold or benchmarks that we want to reach um, in order to make sure that we have, you know, a safe and performant offering for users to, to tap into. And I think one of the things that is really part of that roadmap is looking at, you know, what kind of configurations and middleware solutions we can leverage to not just ensure that we have node operator diversity that sort of meets a lot of the requirements um, that we've set forth, but also ensure that we're continuing to implement um, risk mitigating technologies like DBT, right? And so those, you know, things will probably run in parallel as we continue doing discovery on, you know, the optimized threshold configurations and solutions um, that our node operator set will, will effectively execute on. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I want to get a little more into the, I don't know if tech stack is the right word here, but I want to talk about LSE. So the receipt token of the protocol, what does the process look like if uh, a user wants to go and say, all right, I have a bunch, I have a thousand ETH. I want to go stake them uh, through liquid collective. What would that process look like for me? So there's two ways to get from ETH to LSE. <laughs> the first one is to mint it, right? And so to take your ETH, deposit it through the protocol on the beacon chain and then get LSETH as a receipt of that state position. You can do that across any of the platforms that support the protocol, including uh, Coinbase, Bitcoin Swiss, Figment, who provides custody access to a number of different custodial and non-custodial solutions, including Ledger and BitGo, uh, TwinStake, Hashnode, and others um, that sort of provide the platform basis for people to to to, to deposit ETH and mint LSETH in return. The other option, of course, is to swap or or, or take ETH and uh, take it into LSETH, which we, you know, don't necessarily support through any specific platforms, but is sort of available and accessible in the market. That's super interesting to me. So I guess I'm just having trouble reconciling. Why is it so important to have KYC requirements at the minting level, but not so much so at the, the swap level? So if you think about it, it's similar to the model that USDC has. And what we really looked at here is what is the major concern um, that customers and institutional clients had with using a lot of the existing, you know, call them fully permissionless protocols. And the biggest concern is really that when you're pooling ETH into a contract and you receive a receipt token that does not discriminate where that ETH came from, then chances are when you're pulling out that ETH, you might get ETH back that may be in sanctions violations or that flags and triggers anti-money laundering concerns. And you don't know what ETH you're getting back, but that consideration is really, really important for institutions and enterprises that are looking to adopt this type of solution in the market, making sure that the ETH that they actually retrieve is clean, right? And so that's why we've taken the position that um, you know, similar to the way that USDC sort of has uh, an implementation to make sure that um, all of the US dollars <laughs> that enter the system that USDC gets minted against is clean. We have the same sort of methodology with in an assurance and, um, and global compliance program that includes KYC and AML at the integrator level. So the platforms that integrate the protocol um, to make sure that we sort of need, need those obligations and requirements. Now, what happens after that, really, the way that we look at it, and I don't know if you guys have uh, read through some of the uh, publications that we've had on this, but we really view liquid staking tokens as receipts 
and receives in the traditional commodities world are, you know, similar to the way that you would think about a warehouse receipt or bill that you get when you deposit commodities into a warehouse, right? And so we've leaned on a lot of these considerations when building out this compliance policy. And again, actually work collaboratively with compliance officers and a number of different businesses and industry leading partners um, to put that sort of policy in place. I really love the analogy to USDC there. I think that's a really helpful way to contextualize it, especially for just crypto natives who are, are already comfortable with USDC, but then see something like this, hear the words KYC, AML or whitelist or, you know, uh, permission to minting set and kind of like have a, have a bit of an aneurysm. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it is very uh, analogous to USDC. So I love the context you put around that. When I think about that process, I'm just curious if you've like kind of built out your own internal system because Coinbase recently announced their verification process, which is kind of their their own version of an identity solution. I think they're piloting it on base right now. I'm curious if you like, do you think about that integration at, at all, like the, the potential for that integration with kind of leveraging an existing solution uh, that potentially gets widespread adoption? And further to that, are you doing your own like internal process for this right now? So Alluvial and Liquid Collective are not directly involved in doing any KYC whatsoever. <laughs> um, the way that we built this model is that every platform that integrates the service needs to adhere to the compliance guidelines that we have. We have a third-party compliance partner, Exeter, that operates under Capgemini, so large global company that focuses on you know, compliance um, policies. And what they do is actually validate that the platforms that are integrated in the service are meeting those requirements, right? As opposed to having every single user go through uh, and that new application or review process, it's actually already embedded in anything that you would do to open a traditional account for any of these venues as it already is, right? And so there's sort of no net new or burdensome process that users have to go through. It's all already em embedded in the platform experience and account creation process that you would have with any of these solutions. Um, in terms of how we think about credentialing, I'm really excited about this space. Um, I hope that we can get to a place from a uh, just te technological maturity standpoint where decentralized credentialing and not just centralized credentialing systems um, can actually proliferate. We would definitely look to integrate those types of solutions in the long run, right, um, and foster their development, you know, the discovery around them and, and eventually support the funding of those kinds of initiatives. Um, we see this as sort of instrumental to go from uh, a centralized validation landscape where, you know, centralized providers or platforms are providing the service to eventually having a much more widespread surface area uh, where hopefully people can self-credential, right, and have some verification proof um, that relates back to that. Okay, so the the actual process then kind of falls on the shoulders of the integrators. Uh, can you talk to us a bit about who the integrators are today? Yeah, we have a pretty broad uh, set of integration partners. So integrators include platforms like Coinbase, who has direct access integrations on Coinbase Prime, uh, Bitcoin Swiss, uh, Figment, who provides custody integrations with a number of custodians, uh, Twinstake, Hashnode. We also have uh, custody support and access across a number of different venues, including Anchorage, Hopper, BitGo, Fireblocks. <laughs> And so, you know, we're really the the only and the first uh, liquid staking protocol to have this sort of widespread support um, across existing solutions. And remember, there's a, a massive universe of users that actually require access to those kinds of platforms uh, to be able to interact and use crypto because of internal policies that they may have, right? 
And so for us, it's actually really important that we build a product that can really help that early majority of users um, really onboard into staking uh, and contribute meaningfully to the space. This one's a bit out of left field, but have you thought at all about restaking and how that could aff- like potentially affect like the liquid staking market? Like, is that something you guys are keeping an eye on or is that like, all right, we'll, we'll kind of get to that one. It's actually live. Uh, we, we're definitely looking at it. Um, I think it's uh, an incredibly exciting and promising innovation for the market in a number of different ways. The way that we look at this is what are sort of the fundamental things um, that we would need to build towards as an industry in order to make restaking accessible to your average user, um, as well as institutions that are starting to build an appetite around this space. And so the way that we think about these things are, how do you provide accessibility across, for example, some of the platforms that we support? Um, how can you provide different strategies that have a very clearly articulated uh, risk-adjusted lens to them? Right? So people can articulate the risk of interacting with some of these products and solutions. And so we are excited to roll up our sleeves um, and, and support meaningfully in that innovation and you know bring it to our customers when the time comes. All right, Zero X Research listeners, we're calling on you to join us for the premier institutional crypto conference in Europe's crypto capital, London, this March 2024. You're going to get to hear exclusive insights from industry trailblazers on things like leveraging DeFi protocols for institutional yield, tokenizing real world assets with instant settlement, navigating the evolving global regulatory landscape, integrating digital assets into banking and payments, or crafting institutional investment mandates with digital assets as the key focus. We'll also be featuring some big keynote speakers, including Melvin Dang, the CEO at QCP Capital, Mark Yusko, the CEO and managing partner of Morgan Creek Capital, and Stani Kluchin, the founder and CEO of Ave Companies. This is not an event you're going to want to miss. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using promo code 0x20 to save 20% on your tickets. See you in London, the land of tasty pastries, and be sure to hit up Dan and I for a beer. I want to talk about the the users of this protocol, right? So how would you define the, you know, maybe what the perfect user looks like or what the target audience is? Because it sounds like you have a bit more of that institutional focus. And I think that makes sense. And it really does feel like a hole in the marketplace today. So you can just walk us through your thought process on who the audience is for uh, Liquid Collective. For sure. Um, Since we have the B2B2C model, right, our customers are effectively the platforms um, that provide access to Liquid Collective for their user groups. A lot of those platforms, as we've gone through before, are platforms that are focused on servicing institutional users. Um, and that was quite an intentional sort of go-to-market decision on our side, which means that a lot of the um, end users today are actually institutional clients, uh, long-holding funds, venture funds, corporate funds, um, participants that are really um, security conscious and that want to make sure that they can access a solution through that bad news that they can use, right? Um, and, and that have sort of been uh, approved on their side. But over time, we obviously look to expand to other platforms that may serve a very broader set of participants and users more holistically, right? Our hope is really that we can get to a place where a user on Robinhood or a user on Robinhood, um, on Revolut can, can actually use this product easily, right? Can just plug in and, and get access to, to staking participation in a really seamless and frictionless way, right? And, and on that path, what we want to create is a really great user experience because liquid staking abstracts from a lot of the complexities and the difficulties of using a traditional staking product where, you know, bonding periods, unbonding periods, the activation queue, these things change, and that's really hard to digest for users. So we want to abstract away from a lot of that complexity while providing a solution that is 
you know, performant and, and secure for the customers to actually tether to. What are some of the types of users or entities that you've seen in the initial set of depositors and how do you expect it to change in the future? Who are some of the, the entities that you haven't yet seen that you would really love to see come in? So I think, as I mentioned, a lot of the participants today are sort of long-holding uh, ETH participants, people who are looking to um, participate in staking but are very security conscious um, and are looking for solutions that sort of meet them where they're at. Um, I think as we continue expanding support across other platforms, we do expect to see sort of a shift in, in, in some of the user groups that you know we're looking and exciting to activate and I think to come to mind specifically. The first one is the structured product market, which has been moving pretty swiftly in terms of, you know, we've had ETP providers um, that have launched uh, e-staking products um, over the last two years. Most recently, we had folks like 3IQ get approved for the first state ETH ETF in Canada. And so we do expect that the ETP and ETF market will continue to, to grow. And we do see liquid staking as actually a fundamental and, and very strong fit for those platforms and participants, right? Because for them, having T plus one or T plus two redemption requirements, the activation withdrawal queues being variable is not a good fit for the product that they're offering, right? And so we're really looking to support, um, you know, those solutions and coming live uh, with a product that sort of meets the needs that they have um, to build a great solution product for their clients. Um, the other thing that I would say, and like this is probably in the category of Participants that are not meaningfully participating in staking, but could be using a product like ours to actually start, you know, participating in the market, are is, is basically any institutional participant that is looking at this from a trading perspective, right? So think about, you know, hedge funds, for example, or participants that are trying to figure out how to access uh, market-neutral trading positions, but who, for for whom traditional staking uh, periods and requirements are not really compatible with the strategies that they're pursuing. And so we do have a lot of, you know, partners that we work with that are thinking through these things um, to figure out how to build uh, market neutral strategies and other things that can help them get access to Ethereum space reward rate, right, which many people have sort of inferred to as the risk free rate equivalent in, in the web free market. The ETP space, I think, is super, super interesting. And you're right, like, especially with the US ETF narratives coming through, like, that does seem like this super, super interesting vector. Can you just expand a little bit more on why? liquid staking receipt tokens make kind of our, our perfect fit for that? Like, is it just the liquidity aspect and you can kind of help meet that T plus two redemption or is there something a little bit deeper there? I think there's a number of things and it's not necessarily exclusive to the structured product space when you look at the benefits of liquid staking protocols and, and, and the way that we designed ours, right? I think the first and foremost thing when you look at most of these platforms is that the offering that they're providing needs to be secure. And so they'll not just look at the providers that are offering the service, but in most cases are already distributing stake across a bunch of different operators. Why? Because Ethereum has um, correlation protections built in <laughs> or disincentives, if you want to call it that, right? Um, and so there is there's a motivation to distribute stake across different operators to minimize that risk surface. There is sort of a look towards, you know, getting accessibility through the venues that they need to access these solutions through in most cases, qualified custodians, right? Um, and being able to sort of provide the protection through, you know, splashing insurance and other things that we have natively built into our product. Now, I think specific to the structured product market, as I mentioned earlier, because of the redemption requirements that a lot of these participants are required to fulfill, the variability and the way that Ethereum handles its activation and withdrawal queues 
is not really compatible with a format where you have a guaranteed redemption period that you need to fulfill, right? And so instead of managing a reserve on the back end where you have to sort of arbitrage and figure out how much of your liquidity you need to manage in order to be able to fulfill these redemptions, liquid staking actually alleviates a lot of that operational overhead because you can tap into a solution that allows you to fulfill those redemptions in, in, in sort of an instantaneous basis. Um, and so that's why we do believe that, you know, there's sort of a strong fit, particularly with that solution landscape. Um, and given the timing, now that we're starting to see a lot of these applications sort of move through the process, um, and some of them, you know, in different jurisdictions actually already going through approvals. And when I think about the demand for a structured product around the e-staking yield, I kind of like am stuck in the middle here. I really do feel like I'm mid-curving this one because on one hand, 4% on my favorite asset, that's a no-brainer. Of course, I'm going to want to try to get exposure to that. But on the other, I can also see the argument for, well, like these institutional capital allocators are you know, allocating just a small portion of their portfolio, maybe 1% to 2%, and even less of that in a specific asset ETH. Uh, so the added risk there just maybe isn't worth the return, right? They're thinking that this is either going to zero or is going to triple. So in your experience, I want to just get a little bit of insight around how you think institutional investors kind of like position the ETH yield or the ETH staking rate in their minds? It's really interesting and potentially counterintuitive. Um, but most of the participants that we talk to don't talk much about their reward rates um, or their performance. And, and the reason for that is the variance is, is really not that high. The thing that varies a lot is how secure the setup is, right? What is the risk of principal loss, which is so much more important than the couple of bibs that you can squeeze in and out depending on the configuration that you're deploying. And so that is really the, the, the dominant part of the conversation that we have with any type of institutional customer is the security posture, right? As the market continues to evolve, I think it's particularly this part that changes, right? If we really want to get towards a risk-free rate, it's not a risk-free rate today, right? The things that we need to do is ensure that infrastructure standards are appropriately configured, that the insurance market, not just the decentralized, but also the traditional insurance market ramps up um, so that we have coverage uh, support across the different products and solutions that exist, and making sure that the trade-off of evaluating, participating at a 4 or 5% reward rate and the the, the, the the risk that is associated with that, right, is effectively reduced or mitigated so that everyone can participate uh, in securing the blockchain, right? That's ultimately the goal, right? And us progressing the industry in some ways with the work that we're doing on, you know, building a lot of the standards that we're working towards and sort of, you know, bringing them out in an open source way is really a measure that we're taking in order to get towards that. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. And then just lastly on the ETP stuff. So the liquidity is, uh, aspect of this is, of course, super important, as you mentioned. Can you just walk us through uh, how Liquid Collective kind of thinks about the withdrawal queue? Because you know, even though withdrawals are live with, for, through Liquid Collective, if there was you know a mass exit event for whatever reason, um, there is the potential for a deep egg for a short period of time. So how does the how's the re redemption process designed within the Liquid Collective protocol? And if you could really just talk about the measures that the protocol takes uh, to help prevent that uh, deep egg during that that mass exodus event. For sure, um, I think probably first and foremost uh, we deploy a C token model, right? Um, and so we don't have a unit basis accrual system that you would see with traditional A tokens. Instead, every LSE basically represents state ETH plus the rewards and uses a conversion rate 
um, that then actually refers to um, the underlying value of fees plus accrued rewards minus the fees and the potential penalties that um, come from the validation service. And so in and of itself, the value of LSEs does not have an explicit peg to the market value of ETH, right? Um, the concept of LSEs pegging from the value of ETH is, is unlikely and just the opportunity, I think, in the long run for market arbitrage between the prices in the secondary market and the conversion rate. Um, and I think we've seen sort of self-stabilizing forces in the market around that when we see, you know, um, liquid staking tokens that are uh, priced at a discount or a relative premium um, comparative to the market rate of ETH um, where it's been relevant. In terms of fee structure, I think you guys have a 15% take rate on the uh, the yield. So that's lower than Coinbase's 25%, but higher than Lido's 10%. How did you guys arrive at this number? Um, and yeah, just any other info you could share on that would be great. For sure. So we just, as I mentioned before, are, are obviously focused on distributing to platforms. And so our commercial model is different from what you would see with uh, consumer facing or retail facing products like Lido or Rocket Pool or Stakewise. For us, it was really important that one, you know, the offering for end users would be, um, you know, competitive and also could be flexibly priced. And that platforms were able to um, generate meaningful revenue streams and actually a real meaningful commercial model um, from the integration of the product, right? And so the way that our business actually works um, and, and the way that, you know, the, the reward rate is or the uh, protocol fee is constructed, uh, platforms actually get to decide how they want to price the product to their end users. And so we've built in flexibility for the market to actually determine, you know, what end users effectively receive um, as, as part of the payment structure. Um, and so the, design, with the reason for that design was in part because different platforms have different value propositions, they know their customers, and we really wanted to make sure that platforms were empowered and enabled to actually set the pricing fees for their clients. The other thing is that we're not a pure just institutional focused product, but we support platforms that may have retail users or institutional customers, and those segments have widely different pricing sensitivities. <laughs> Um, where in general, institution cli institutional clients, especially large, sophisticated clients, have a lot of price power, um, and they tend to be quite price sensitive, whereas retail users, as you see with a lot of sort of the exchange rate fees that you see <laughs> that are significantly higher um, than some of the institutional rates, you know, those, those that market segment tends to be a little bit less price sensitive. And so we wanted to, you know, kind of find the middle ground in the way that we set the gross protocol fee and also empower platforms to ultimately make the decision of how they wanted to price their users. Um, without necessarily being involved in that process or mandating that pricing structure. Now that's super unique. And on the platform side, so yeah, I know you, you have a lot of integrators that are like uh, exchanges and we've seen a lot of exchanges kind of see that market potential as well and then create their own liquid staking solution. Coinbase has CBETH, Binance now has BETH. Why, if I, was a, if I was an exchange, like why would I not want to funnel all of my activity towards my own staking solution and also opt into liquid collective i think this goes back to sort of our fundamental view on the market <laughs> um i think when we think about mainstream adoption what does mainstream adoption look like and what does mainstream adoption mean in terms of the things that you know solution needs to provide and so the way that we really have always thought about this is that any market leading product would be leading on the basis of its liquidity the utility it provides to its users, right? The opportunity to move um, tokens across platforms and having interoperability across them and, you know, having security and compliance built in by design. Um, it's sort of a question of 
do you build um, to holistically service the market or do you sort of silo your product to the platform um, that is providing the service? And, and our view was always that partnering with different platforms, providing access across a really widespread uh, set of market participants is the best product for users because it gives them optionality, right? It also means that you can build a much larger addressable market through that than just servicing your own users on your own exchange or through your own custody platform, right? And I think because liquid staking tokens in so many ways behave like money <laughs> and have the same mechanisms or dynamics when you think about sort of the network effects that come with building liquid staking tokens in the market, that interoperability, that scalability model is so, so important to have and build liquidity to get to the point where you know the mainstream market can actually access this product in a meaningful way. And I think there's a, a couple of other things that we always sort of looked at and we took a lot of inspiration from the way that Visa was built, not as a crypto company, <laughs> but as an organization that pioneered this model of taking a lot of industry competitors and partners together to build a payment system. We kind of view our business as quite similar in the sense that we partner with a lot of different industry leading uh, companies and businesses to sort of build the standard in the market. And there, there are merits to taking that collaborative approach, even though collaboration is costly, right? Not an easy thing to do. I would say it's probably one of the harder things to do. Um, but the merit of that is being able to sort of form a collective or a shared understanding um, and, and sort of build the accountability to build something that is great and ever evolving. And particularly in our market, I think one of the unique advantages we see with that approach is the fact that you can actually bring all these parties together to think about things that are sort of beyond just them, right? Building for regulatory advocacy, coming together on publishing, you know, white papers like we did on the Spellbook proposal work screen and, and getting those out there so that we could take a more proactive approach in the policy, you know, discourse and conversation. And I think that is actually really important for a technology and a primitive that is as impactful as liquid staking can be on the entire market. We touched on this a bit with the uh, restaking aspect, and I think we mentioned DBT earlier in the conversation as well. But I'm curious if there's uh, any more innovations in the liquid staking market that you think about as being super, super interesting, like maybe the emerging middleware segment in another way. Um, how do you think about these things? Well, we think about them a lot. <laughs> Um, I think there's sort of the like middleware performance focused landscape uh, of, of MEV that obviously we're, we're spending a ton of time on, you know, taking a look at the way that we can continue, you know, sort of advocating for, for best practices and considerations there. Um, DBT, personally, I've been very involved with that technology sort of since its early innings and, and kicking off the first working group on that with, with the Ethereum Foundation. But um, I do fundamentally believe that DBT sort of changes the configuration of how we think about uh, risk sharing um, across load operators. And, and it also becomes an input, if you will, into the insurance conversations, right? Because you're building an effectively resilient model um, that just provides a significantly better posture and security for users, right? And, and anything that can sort of accomplish that is something that, you know, I personally, and I think we as a business want to support. Um, I think there's a lot of market trends, though, that are interesting kind of beyond just like what is happening in the middleware space. Uh, when you look at everything that's happening in, in the L2 stratosphere at the moment <laughs> um, and all the migrations that are happening, particularly as we think about, you know, the conversation we just had about, um, you know, we see exchanges building their own liquid staking tokens, but we're also seeing them build their own L2s, right? And, and what does that sort of mean for composability in the market? It all goes back to the question of, 
How can we build outside of silos? How do we create utility for users? How do we make it really easy for people to communicate with different platforms? Because that is actually the fundamental value of this technology, right? If we bifurcate and silo everything at different layers of the stack, you sort of lose a lot of that value for, for, for customers and the ability to sort of move around and, 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 and use the composability that you know, this technology was designed for. So I'm really excited to see how that continues evolving <laughs> um, and, and sort of keeping our tabs on it. And of course, um, you know, contributing in our own way to support that as part of our expansion footprint. That's awesome as well. And I, getting into some of the closing questions here, Naturally, this conversation centered a lot around Ethereum, given that's the, large, uh, the largest staked token by market cap. And uh, that is, of course, where Liquid Collective is launched today. How do you think about expanding into other changes, given that there are many proof of stake chains that do have uh, similar market structures and kind of are starting to see Liquid staking become more of a, a factor within those ecosystems as well? For sure. I think we generally think about the market and, and ourselves and the protocol as a multi-chain solution. I think for us, the question really becomes um, sort of what is the escape velocity on Ethereum core development and how do we see that sort of proliferate and translate into what we see at the L2 level today um, and sort of so supporting that expansion path um, as well as L1s that are becoming interesting or re-emerging in the market um, since, you know, there's definitely been a lot of changes in the last 18 months, at least in terms of how the market's been configured. Um, but no, I think the short answer is we're really excited to just sort of expand the standard um, across, you know, other networks and other chains, whether they're EVM compatible, supporting them on bridging to L2s, um, or looking at, you know, bringing the solution to other L1s in the market. And then lastly here, I want to talk a bit about the challenge. What are the, some of the largest challenges that you have faced in uh, building a development company that is servicing Liquid Collective? Is it actually on you know solving some of these gigabrain level uh, questions around Liquid staking or the staking market as a whole? Or is it something even more on the other side of things where it's just like running a business that is based around a protocol is extremely hard? I'm just curious to hear your story about the challenges that you've faced. Yes. Well, I think it's probably, there's probably a list of things. Um, I think the first one is probably the way that we built the protocol and, and our business in that sort of collaborative way. I mean, we had a very atypical origin to begin with. You know, as part of our founding, we had Kraken and Coinbase and Figment come together and sort of seed funding for the business, which is really atypical if you think about the market, just having a bunch of competitors coming around the table and sort of, um, you know, co-developing and supporting, you know, the design choices of a given solution just because they have a need for it. Um, and sort of over time scaling from those three, four different participants and businesses to now, you know, having so many different platforms, uh, tech providers, partners that we work with that are sort of contributing to that. Um, collaboration is really powerful and I think of it as a load for us and at the same time that's extremely challenging <laughs> just imagine you know sitting in a task group meeting with a bunch of competing businesses trying to get to an agreement on something <laughs> um, and so there's definitely you know um, starting uh, the pro pros and cons to that approach from our perspective but um, it's really exciting because you just get loads of different brains and ideas around the table and, and that ultimately I think you know helps us build for, for much better things um, I think the other thing, and it's not unique to us, but um, when building a protocol development company um, and at the same time, you know, sort of supporting the development of the protocol, it's almost you have like two children, you know, that you have to think about and, and kind of figuring out how to 
um, effectively support, you know, the growth and development of these things to eventually become self-sustaining, right? Um, and contributed to by many different businesses. And in an ideal world, you know, we're excited of seeing many different alluvials uh, plugging into Liquid Collective and providing, you know, accounting services or staking APIs or restaking solutions that use the protocol. Um, and we d- we definitely want to, you know, see and encourage that market and nuclear freight. So it remains exciting and and, and then a great challenge to solve. Well, Mara, that's all fantastic to hear. And we appreciate with a liquid collective uh and again congratulations on the the big announcement with the slas i think it's a huge step forward not only for uh liquid collective but also for the industry as a whole so thanks again mara we really appreciate it and we'll have you back on sometime in the future sounds great thank you both awesome cheers Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you really enjoyed it. Wanted to take one more moment to remind you guys about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so be sure to hit the link in the description and use promo code 0x20 to save 20% off on your ticket. We'll see you in London. Be sure to hit us up if you plan on attending.